Well, good morning. So good to be with you this morning. I take it Pastor Tony is gone, and I'm filling in for him. Uh, my name is Amanda Bankhausen, and I'm an Old Testament professor at Calvin Seminary. And uh, when Sherry uh, extended the invitation to me to come and preach here, I, I think I was here about a year ago, and I thought, yeah, I want to come back. This is such a great con congregation. I was honored to receive the invitation. But more than that, I just feel really blessed to um, be worshiping with you this morning. It's been a great worship service so far, so thank you to our worship leaders and uh, to our dramatist. Um, I've been really blessed to be among you, and I hope you've been blessed this morning as well. We're going to open up the Word of God this morning to Isaiah 43, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, and that's in your pew Bibles. You can find that on page 589. And I made the mistake of taking um, one that was in the pew rather than the large print at the back, so I'm going to be using my little reading glasses this morning. So page 589, Isaiah uh, 43, and we're going to read verses 1 through 7. Listen to the word of the Lord this morning. But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear. Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt for your ransom, and Cush and Seba in your stead. Since you are my precious, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give people in exchange for you, nations in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bring your children from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory whom I formed and made. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. I don't know about you, but sometimes getting ready for church on Sunday morning is a little bit of a challenge. 
I have two teenage daughters, and my husband is a pastor. He's the pastor at Kellogg'sville Christian Reformed Church. So he likes to sort of guard his space and his time on Sunday mornings because he's getting ready. He's sort of centering himself to bring the word of God to the people. So it's up to me to get my two teenage daughters and myself ready to get out of the house on time to get to church. And so uh, there's a lot that's going on. I mean, there's breakfast to be eaten, right? There's hair to be done. There are outfits to put on. And often it goes something like this. Mom, does, do I look okay? Does this match? Does this work? Yeah, you look great. That's fine. No, it looks terrible. And then we go on to the next outfit. <laughs> and we start it all over again. And inevitably, uh, the time is coming near when we have to leave and we're almost ready. We all sort of gather at the front door. And then one of my daughters says, I don't have any shoes. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't have any shoes? Like, let's, let's find your shoes. No, Mom, it's not just that I can't find my shoes. I don't have any shoes. Because for some reason, they've outgrown the shoes that they were supposed to be wearing, and they failed to mention it to me during the week or those shoes broke over the course of the week and now they don't have any shoes to wear or they left them at a friend's house. And it's not been unknown for us to go to church with one of my daughters wearing winter boots in the summer and flip-flops in December simply because we can't find the shoes. Um, and I kid you not, about a month ago, we even went to church with one of my daughters in bare feet. <laughs> we, simply, <laughs> we simply gave up and walked out the door. <laughs> I don't know. Can any of you relate? Does, do your Sunday mornings feel a little bit like that? Like you're running around scrambling to get it together to get to church? If that sounds like your Sunday morning, I want you to just take a moment and take a deep breath. The truth of the matter is, when we come to church on Sunday morning, our external worlds may be a bit chaotic, but I betcha, uh, may or may not be a bit chaotic, but I betcha for most of us, our internal worlds are quite chaotic. We come into this place, and we're well-dressed, and we look like we have it together, but my guess is that most of us, including myself, are carrying a pretty heavy emotional load. Life is hard. And the older I get, the more I realize life is hard. And it really doesn't matter what stage of life you find yourself in. Each stage comes with new opportunities, but it also comes with new challenges, new worries, new disappointments new fears, new sorrows, new failures. Parents worry about their children, about this, their, their children's safety, their happiness, their future. Couples struggle in their marriages. Elementary school kids bear the wounds of playground politics. High schoolers struggle to keep up with the overwhelming demands of schoolwork and sports and relationships. Adults flounder in stressful work environments. 
with too many demands and not enough encouragement. Aging adults wrestle with limitations and frailty of their bodies. Families worry about money and the economy and being able to provide. And in addition to all these concerns, I think many of us, especially over the last year, and statistics show this to be the case, grieve what is going on in our nation. Recent studies have shown that many Americans are anxious and frustrated about what's happening on the political scene. And it really doesn't matter what political stripe or party affiliation um, you are, but just frustrated by the political infighting and the polarization and the hate that seems to be, have taken hold of our country and the divisiveness and the inability to have any real conversations about the things that matter so deeply, about immigration and racial injustice and climate change and health care and gun violence. These are challenging times. And the stats show that more Americans are worried about the state of our country than ever before and about what kind of future we're passing on to our children. And I mention all of this just to acknowledge that we carry a lot in our hearts. A lot of worries, a lot of sorrows, a lot of grief, a lot of joys too. It's not all negative. A lot of failures. We know our world is broken. We see sin at work in the world and in our own lives. And it's wearing, right? It's all a bit tiring. And I don't know about you, but I find myself whispering under my breath on good days, come, Lord Jesus, come, Lord Jesus. And on bad days, okay, God, where are you in this mess? Have you rejected us? Have you abandoned us? I imagine that the people of Israel felt something like this when Isaiah's words came to them some 2,500 years ago. They were in exile, and they had been in exile for about 30 to 40 years. So that's a long time where they're waiting. And they had settled in a little and probably built houses and had children and planted gardens and tried to carve out some sort of existence for themselves in this strange and foreign land. And I imagine life was not easy for them. They were, after all, the foreigners. They were the bod at the bottom of the social ladder. And likely they were underemployed, doing the scut jobs that the Babylonians wouldn't do. They were overworked and underpaid and underappreciated. No doubt they worried about money and providing for their families. They worried about opportunities for their kids. They worried about the future. They worried about this new empire that was rising up in the east, the Persian Empire, and that was threatening to overtake Babylon at the time. They wondered 
what would happen to them, what, the, what um, was going to happen to them if the Persians took over. There was significant uncertainty about the future. And I imagine they asked themselves, where is God in all of this? Had they driven God away with their sinfulness? Had God finally given up on them? Had God determined that they weren't worth it? Had God abandoned them to their sin and brokenness? After all, the prophets make very clear to the people that the Babylonian exile is a result of their disobedience. What if God finally walked away? And what if their life in Babylon was all there was? We can hear their fear, their despair, their desperation in the Psalms of Lament. How long, O Lord, Will you forsake us forever? Awake, O Lord, why do you sleep? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us. We are brought down to the dust. Rise up and help us. You see, the Babylonian, I mean, the Israelites in Babylon thought that God had walked away. Or God had turned his back. But the truth of the matter was that it was they who had rejected God. Not God who had rejected them. And it was they who had broken covenant. Not the other way around. It turned out that God had not ignored them, that they had ignored God. So God hears their cries for help. And because God is not human, and he does not walk away when the going gets tough, he sees their suffering, and he witnesses their burdens. He hears their cries. He sees their sorrows. And he can hardly stand it. The passage we read this morning depicts a God who is deeply moved by their suffering. God can't let them go through this on their own. And he says, I'm here. I am here. And I am ready to come alongside you, to wrap my arms around you, to take your hand and journey with you. Do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. I will never let you go. When you pass through the waters, when you walk through the fire, we're going to do it together. You will not go it alone. I have got you. Nothing, nothing can separate you from my love. One almost gets the impression from this passage that for as much as they felt bad about what they were going through, 
about their suffering, about their sorrow, about their grief, about their failures, about their shame. God felt worse. He hated to see his people in exile. He hated to see his people demeaned and disheartened and discouraged. The God in this passage is a God who is overcome with grief, who is determined to enter into the suffering of his people, not only weeping for them, but weeping with them. C.S. Lewis, in the first book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Magician's Nephew, he illustrates this side of God so beautifully in an exchange between Aslan the lion and Diggory the young boy. Aslan the lion has asked Diggory to go on a special mission that's going to help protect Narnia from evil for many years to come and in the process save many lives. But Diggory is concerned about his sick mother and he's worried. He's very worried that by going on this mission, it's going to take precious time away from his finding a cure for his mother and bringing it back to her so she can get well. And his concerns are not unfounded. His mother is hovering between life and death. So Aslan summons Diggory to commission him, and he asks him, Are you ready? Are you ready to go? Yes, Diggory replies. And then C.S. Lewis writes, He had had for a second, Diggory, that is, had had for a second some wild idea of saying, I'll try to help you if you promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. But when he had said yes to Aslan, he thought of his mother, and he thought of the great hopes he had had, and how they were all dying away, and a lump came into his throat and tears into his eyes, and he blurted out, but please, Please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? And up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. But now in his despair, he looked up into the lion's face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. Our God grieves over the things that grieve us. 
Our God grieves over the things that give us sorrow. Our God grieves over our anxious hearts, over our, our shame, over our failures. And our God is a God who is all in, no holds bar. In fact, in the passage we read this spread this morning, God is so committed to his people that he kind of goes a little crazy, right? He's so ready to redeem them from exile that he, he will do it at any cost. He says, I'm going to give up whole nations for you. I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring you out of exile. And you can feel this kind of energy and wild and craziness, this, this intensity of God's desire to bring his people out of exile. He would do anything. And for those of us who know the end of the story, we know God did do everything. He did everything. He gave everything to redeem his people, to redeem us as his people from sin, from brokenness, from shame, from death. And it cost him a whole lot more than other nations. It cost him something much closer to his own heart, much more important to him. It cost him his own son. God gave everything because of his love for us, because he was determined that this shouldn't be the end of our stories, that this isn't all there is. Because he was determined to establish a kingdom where our hearts are not burdened with sorrow and grief and the troubles of a broken world, but where we are free to love. A kingdom of light and life and shalom where there is, as we heard this morning, no more pain and suffering and death. And we hang on to the promise that that is a kingdom that is yet to come in its, full, in its fullness. But in the meantime, the promise of this passage, what God said to Israel and what God says to us today, is don't be afraid. In the meantime, don't be afraid. And this is a drumbeat throughout all of Scripture. God says it to Abraham and to Moses and to Joshua and to Ahaz and to Mary and to Paul. Don't be afraid. Not because you're not going to face trials. Not because there's not going to be sorrow that you carry in your heart. Not because there won't be failures and there won't be sin. There will be all of those things in this life, on this side of the kingdom. But because God promises to be with us in whatever trials we face, whatever worries we have, God says you will never be alone because I love you. I love you. I want to take a moment this morning, and I just want to invite you to think about 
What are the ashes, laments, tears, and fears that you carry in your heart to this place this morning? What are your sorrows, your failures, the shame? What's going on in, in your inside of you? I want you to hear the good news this morning. God sees your pain. He sees your sorrows. He sees your troubles. He sees the things that keep you awake at night. He sees the things that crowd your heart and your mind. And as much as these are a big deal to you, they are a bigger deal to God. Because we have a God who not only weeps for us, but weeps with us. And we have a God who takes us by the hand and says, we're in it together. A God who sustains us by his spirit so that when we pass through the waters and walk through the fire, we can be confident that we will not be overcome because God will sustain us and carry us through to the other side. That is the promise of Scripture. Now, I don't know about you, but that's a message I need to hear again and again and again. As I was thinking about this morning and what word I might open up for you this morning. I noticed on your website that you've been going through a church Why Bother series. So I thought I would offer this message as kind of an addendum to that series. I know it's over now, but I offer it because I think when we go out into the world in our day-to-day -day life, we get all kinds of messages about who we are and who God is. And these are distorted messages, right? They're messages that tell us that we're not enough, that we're not good, or they're messages that tell us that we're more than we are, or they're messages that tell us that God doesn't exist, right? We need to come to this place again and again and again, week after week after week, to be reminded of who we are and whose we are. We are sinners. We are broken. We live in a broken world. All of that is true. But that is not the end of our story. There is more to us than that. We are also loved and redeemed by God, forgiven by Jesus Christ. We are children of the one true King. We need to come here week after week to be reoriented and reminded that that is ultimately who we are. This is the good news of the gospel. And it is the gladdest thing of all glad things, as Frederick Buechner says. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.
oh God. You see not just our outward appearance, but you see into our hearts. You know what's going on. You know the struggles we bear, the worries and fears we carry, the sorrows, the griefs, the joys, the happiness, the gratitude. You know it all. Lord, we pray that as we go out into this week, your spirit would stir mightily in us so that we would know that you are indeed by our side, that you have taken us by the hand, that you have claimed us as your own. Show us more of yourself, O Lord. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. We have an opportunity at this time to give of our gifts, and our gifts are the offerings.